It has been a, an amazing morning so far. And before I, I start, I just want to just say that when we do things like what we did with the veterans and when we hear from Pastor Tim and from Omar, you realize what an amazing family this is. And I'm so grateful to be a part of this family. So, anyway, God is good to us. Art has a unique way of communicating truth that would otherwise get past us, that we would fail to see. And the best art has an ability to provoke you and to challenge your ways of seeing the world and your place in it. Eric Pickerskill is a full-time artist working in North Carolina, working primarily in the medium of photography. And he explores the psychological and the social effects that cameras have on individuals and societies as a whole. He has an amazing project called Removed that he's been working on the last several years that explores our relationships with our cell phones. So look out. It's going to get real, everybody. (laughs) Now, the project began unexpectedly one morning when he was at a cafe in Troy, New York. And uh, what started it was he, he was having coffee and he noticed a family that was next to him that was totally disconnected from one another. There were two teenage daughters that were on their phone. The father was on his phone. And what he noticed, though, in the midst of that was was the mom looking sadly out the window, uh, looking to her family, hoping to get connected. And, and, and the father would every now and then just no- mention something that he'd found from the Internet. Nobody made any comment. Finally, uh, Pickersgill noted that... Um, the, the mom, she, she finally just gives in and pulls her phone out. Now, he shares just how saddened he was by the fact that technology has come to replace human contact. And the image of that family and the mother's face and the teenage girls and the father, just how they're so disconnected, has, it's an image that's been burned into his mind. And he says it was one of those moments that serves as a wake-up call when you finally see what's actually happening around you and it changes you forever. And I find this fascinating. The Remove Project are reenactments. These are scenes that he experiences daily. And what he does is he has the subject pose and he removes, removes the camera from the subject's hand. He sees us all the time in the grocery store, in classrooms, in homes, on the side of us, on the highway, even in his own bed as he falls asleep next to his wife. This may seem dramatic, but the truth is we all live in an age of distraction, whether it's driving with one eye on our cell phones or all the digital distractions in our office. Listen to some of the research that I found. Sending or receiving a text takes a driver's eye off the road for for an average of 4.6 seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's equivalent of driving the length of a football field blind. Employees who multitask take 50% longer to complete an assignment compared to employees who focus on a single task. Last, a recent study by the technology firm Asurian reports that 35% of people surveyed say their sex life has been impacted because of their or their spouse's bedtime phone use. This new way of living is definitely taking its toll on us. We see this kind of distraction from the most important things creeping into the church. 
And when I look online, I see people who I know who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ who are amazing evangelists for their political party or their candidate or their social cause. And I'll be honest with you, I'm actually amazed at the thoughtfulness and the thoroughness with some of their arguments. But I'm also amazed at the amount of time that it takes to create so many posts on social media. It's impressive. But I can't help but wonder about the people in their lives. Friends, neighbors, or children who are starving for attention and discipleship in the things of God. What's happening to us? As Christians, we are a people who are more and more having trouble focusing on the most important things in this life. And just like Eric Pickerskill's project removed as the church, I feel like we need a wake-up call that's going to shock us back into reality. We need to get back to making the main thing the main thing. Big idea for the message is the gospel saves you and the gospel sustains you. And from the scriptures today, I want you to understand that the gospel does save you in a moment of time. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, when you repent, you are born again. And you are now and forever secured in the kingdom of God for eternity. But it doesn't just stop there. The gospel sustains and nourishes you on this side of eternity as well. And Lord knows right now we need sustaining in the here and now. And when life comes crashing in on you, when you fail, when you sin, when you say those things that you can't take back, that's when you need the gospel. That's when you need the assurance that you are safe and secure in the loving arms of your heavenly father. And when things are going well, we need the gospel. When you've had a major victory, when all is right in the world, you need the gospel then too. Listen, we never graduate from the gospel. The gospel saves us and sustains us. And I'm speaking to two different groups of people today. One are Christians, and you've been walking with God. You've, been, you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior for some time. For you, this is going to be a calling you back to your first love. And the second group is maybe, maybe you're an atheist. Maybe you're, maybe you're agnostic. Maybe, maybe you're like I was. Spiritual, but not religious. Or, or maybe you've actually been attending church for years, but you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. For you, this will be an introduction. And get ready, because it's great news. And my hope is the same for both groups, that you would hear the gospel in a fresh way, and that would lead you to a life-changing life encounter with Jesus Christ. This is important, and I take nothing for granted, so let's ask God for his help. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would be glorified. Lord, your word says that your word is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces between bones and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Father, I pray against any distraction from the enemy. And Father, I pray that nothing would hinder your word today 
Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have from your word. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. My text today is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But as always, before we dive into the text, let's get a little bit of the background. 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul around 54 or so A.D. And like many of the other New Testament epistles, 1 Corinthians is what is known as what's called an occasional letter. And that simply means that there was a specific purpose or a specific situation that Paul was writing to address. Now, in Corinth was a well-established city. It was prosperous. It was cosmopolitan. It was on the cutting edge intellectually. Corinth was also a very religious city with many gods and goddesses that you could worship. And the concept there was simple. The more gods, the better. And this blending of religions, which is known as syncretism, that was common in Corinth is very common in our day as well. Here's a story to give you a little bit of an insight. My professor Old Testament, uh, Dr. Betts, told a story about when he was a kid during the Vietnam War. And back then they used to have uh, these USO specials where celebrities would go overseas to encourage the troops. And one day when he was a little boy, he was watching uh, the TV screen. And Bob Hope was uh, on the TV and he was addressing the, the soldiers. And he made a, a, a joke that caught uh, the professor's attention as a little boy. And this is what Bob Hope said. He said, I'm a Baptist. I'm a Catholic And I'm a Jew because I don't want to miss heaven on any technicality. (laughs) Though Mr. Hope didn't know it, he was talking about syncretism. Syncretism is and will always be a danger to the people of God. It was a problem for the Israelites and their encounters in Canaan with Baal worship. It was a problem in the Corinthian church with idolatry and it's a problem today. And the Corinthian church had many problems that concerned Paul. There were divisions over sexual immorality, uh, divisions over marriage. There were divisions over individual rights and responsibilities of believers, the Lord's Supper, supernatural gifts. But the most important to Paul was their drift from the main thing, the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus. So with that background and context in mind, let's go to our text today, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. 
join me as we dive into the treasures of the gospel. First thing that I want to say is the gospel rescues you. At the end of chapter 14, Paul has just completed the most detailed explanation of supernatural gifts in the life of the New Testament church. He's taught on the reality of the power of God. He's taught on how we should desire the supernatural gifts. And he's also taught on the proper use of the gifts in the church. The power of the Holy Spirit is a New Testament reality for every follower of Jesus Christ. That was true in Corinth and it's true today here at New Life Church. So why does Paul say here that he needs to remind them of the gospel? Well, Paul had received word that things had gotten out of balance. Things that had once been clear had become confusing. Things that were once orderly had become chaotic. And as their spiritual father, Paul is taking nothing for granted here. He's making it explicit and reminding them of what, reminding them of what they know and of who they are. Paul says that he preached the gospel and that they received it. Now, notice here in verses 1 and 2, the holistic totality, totality the, to, the whole power of the gospel. They were saved, they're standing in it, and they are being saved. The gospel covers you past, present, and future. The gospel saves you in a moment of time, and it sustains you for all of eternity. That is amazing. Now, let's pause here for one second. I shared back in June about the need to share the gospel message verbally. And here's a practical example in our own backyard. Things have been going well at the uh, Country Brook Hot Dogs and Homework Outreach. Um, we've making, we're making friends, and we're meeting real needs with food assistance and our homework tutoring. And it's a tangible way, just as we hoped, to love our neighbors. But no matter how much we love them through service or hospitality, the ultimate expression of love is to introduce them to Jesus Christ by using words to share the gospel message. Now, just like Paul in the Corinthian church, we want to be sure that we are making the gospel clear. And by God's grace, several of us have had the opportunity to have spiritual conversations with the kids. But one of the dangers we need to guard against is familiarity. We've heard about this before, especially if we've been in the church for a long time. In his book, The Explicit Gospel, Matt Chandler talks about at his church what they call a celebration weekend. Uh, and part of that celebration weekend was a baptism service. And he shared in the, in the book the story of how several people had gone up. They're a big church, uh, thousands of people. It was a big baptism service. And several people went up. And as they were being baptized, they told their testimony. But many of them went up and shared how they'd grown up in church, how they'd gone to church every Sunday. They went to youth camp, and they went to VBS, and they went to prayer meetings. But they lost interest over time in the church and in Jesus Christ, and they began to walk in open sin. And then they went on to share that it wasn't until fairly recently that someone in their life actually sit down and explicitly laid out the gospel for them for the first time. Well, Chandler couldn't believe this, so he, he did some research with some, some of those people, and he followed up with them. And what he found was that he, he was alarmed at the number of men and women who could produce no record no memory, no sermon notes, no journals that showed that they had understood the gospel. 
he found that for many 20 and 30-somethings in the church, the gospel had been merely assumed just because they went to church. But it hadn't been taught or proclaimed as central to their Christian faith. What a tragedy. That is not the way it is supposed to be in the church. And it leads me to this question. Is the gospel assumed or explicit in your life? Does the gospel affect how you live every day? See, it's important. Our kids need to see how the gospel makes a difference in real time. It's not easy, but, and you have to be intentional. Just this past day, I had a chance to make the gospel explicit Wednesday night after church. One of the things that our boys love to do when we're driving is they love to, to take my phone or Becky's phone, and, and they love to DJ. They love to, to pick out some songs. And, and let me tell you, when we're driving and they're DJing, that can be the best of times or the worst of times. <laughs> and on the way home this past Wednesday, Benjamin was DJing, and he was introducing Johnny Cash to his cousins. Uh, it's a great choice. And, and the song he chose was actually a great song. But, but I had one in mind that I thought would be better. And I expressed that to Benjamin, unfortunately, in a critical way. And after dropping my nephew's home, it was actually Judah's turn to DJ. And he made some choices that I praised that Benjamin hated. So when we got home, Ben was quiet and he went to his room. And as I was cleaning the kitchen about an hour later, the Holy Spirit brought that incident to my mind. And I was crushed because I had crushed Benjamin's spirit. So I put the gospel in practice. I humbled myself. I went upstairs. I went into his room and I told him, I'm so sorry for being rude to you. Would you please forgive me? And of course he did. Now, I share that story to make the point that we need to make the gospel real every chance we get. When I was a younger Christian, that would have eaten my lunch. I would have stewed for days about how terrible of a father I was. Listen, it was not one of my finer moments. But I was able to feel the pain of that incident and to move on secure in God's love for me. And for some of you right now, you are battling condemnation for mistakes that you've made. And maybe even some, of the, some that you've made on the way to church this morning. If that's you, let the gospel wash over you. The gospel saves us and it sustains us. In verse 3, Paul says that when he preached to them the gospel, he was passing on to them what he had received and what he considered the most important thing. John Piper wrote a book about 15 years ago called God is the Gospel. And the premise of the book is that God himself, as revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the ultimate gift of the gospel. In other words, God himself is our supreme treasure. And in the introduction, Piper asked a question that haunts me to this day. I, I've shared this before, but it, 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 it applies here. And let me read it to you. This is what he says in the book. He says, quote, If you could have heaven with no sickness 
and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all of your favorite foods and all of your favorite entertainment and leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted with no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied if Jesus wasn't there? The short version of that question is, what is your supreme treasure? Is there something that is, if you're honest, a rival for your affections? Paul then moves from the primacy of the gospel to the content of the gospel. And as New Testament believers, we know that the gospel is cosmic in scope. The gospel can and should impact and affect every area of reality and culture. But here, in verse 3, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that the gospel is intensely personal. Verse 3 says that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus' death was predicted long ago. His death is our substitute. Accordance with the scriptures is a reference and a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, starting in verse 5. It says here, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 4, he carries on saying that Jesus was buried. This emphasizes the reality that there was an actual dead corpse put in that tomb. And he goes on to say that he was raised on the third day. See, this is not just a a declaration about some vague notion about eternal life and going to heaven. Paul is challenging here the Greek thought about the afterlife, which teaches that the body is bad and the soul is good. And what happens and the goal of death is for the soul to escape the confines of the body and live freely in a disembodied state. The resurrection is is the crescendo of the gospel. Paul goes on later in in chapter 15 to teach that believers in Christ are going to receive resurrected, glorious bodies just like Jesus. So without the atoning sacrifice of Jesus and without his resurrection from the grave, there is no Christian faith. Everyone has faith. Everyone has put their ultimate trust in something. And faith isn't about how passionately you believe something or how genuinely sincere you are, but rather, what is the object of your faith? Paul goes on in verse 5 to 7 and with the phrase here, then he appeared. And this here is an apologetic argument that Paul is weaving into the text here. He's sharing the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. And notice how long the list is. Peter, the 12, the 500, and James, and then to all of the apostles. Remember that 1 Corinthians was written about 25 years after the events of Jesus' actual death and resurrection, which means there were people alive, many of them, who could easily say that the apostles were either lying or mistaken. 
So one of the ways I want to strengthen you with this message is to encourage you that you can have confidence in the fact that Christianity is based in real historical events. We believe in a gospel that took place in real time with the true account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The gospel rescues you. Second, the gospel tethers you. 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, Paul continues his list of eyewitness accounts and says that Jesus appeared to him last of all. And what he means here is not only chronologically, but last in importance. Paul is making the point that because of what he's done, because of his past, he is the last person that Jesus should have appeared to. And that's how the gospel tethers you. It keeps you grounded by keeping you honest. One of the dangers we face as we grow in influence and success is that we begin to have an unhealthy distance and appreciation from where we've come from. And one of the reasons that I believe that there have been so many moral failures of influential Christian leaders is that they've become untethered to the gospel. And listen, there are too many to name in recent years, but the one common thread is an elevated sense and prideful sense of their own importance and the affirmation that comes from that. See, what happens is they think that their success is dependent on them, and then they develop a sense of entitlement. And it becomes a vicious cycle. To get more success, you have to do more and work harder. And they drift away from the gospel. As that happens, they get their value and their sense of purpose from the things that they are doing or the things that they have instead of from who they are. And that's unsustainable. In fact, it's so unsustainable that there's an actual syndrome named for it. It's called imposter syndrome. Sam Alberry defines imposter syndrome as the haunting feeling that you can't really do what everyone expects you to be able to do. It assumes that any success you've experienced is an unrepeatable fluke. It's just blind luck. You know the truth, though. That you're really a fraud and at any moment now, everyone is going to see, see it and you'll be exposed for the imposter that you are. That's imposter syndrome. In an interview with Fresh Air's Terry Gross, Tom Hanks described how he felt particularly connected with one of his character's sense of self-doubt. This is what Tom Hanks says, quote, No matter what we've done, there comes a point where you think, how did I get here? When are they going to discover that I am, am in fact, a fraud and take everything away from me, Hanks explains. There are days when I know that 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon is coming and I'm going to have to deliver some degree of emotional goods. And if I can't do it, that means I'm going to have to fake it, Hanks says. And if I fake it, that means that they might catch me faking it. And if they catch me faking it, well, then it's just doomsday. This is crazy. Tom Hanks is worried that people will find out he's faking it. He's an actor. (laughs) He pretends for a living. (laughs) That's how deceptive this mentality is. 
Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like a fraud or felt anxiety that you don't measure up to people, to what people think about you? Listen, you're not alone. I feel like that every time I get up here to preach. And there's a narrative that's running in the background that says, you don't belong up there. You don't know what you're doing. And that narrative is there because there's still a small part of me that's trying to find my identity and my sense of value and sense of self-worth in what I'm doing rather than who I am. Experts give all kinds of advice on how to overcome imposter syndrome. One technique is to reframe the situation with positive, happy thoughts. Uh, Yeah, right. Uh, Another is trying to imagine that you're not the only one who's feeling insecure, that your colleagues are dealing with the same thoughts you are and that, and they're not dealing with it as well as you are. Wow, that's loving. No. These are only temporary fixes for a permanent problem. The truth is, we're all imposters. And the answer isn't to feel better. It's to know better. The only antidote to the imposter syndrome isn't the power of positive thinking. It's the power of the gospel. It's being honest about our need for God's grace in each and every area of our lives. And listen, there is no place in the Christian life for trying to sanitize who we are or where we've come from. And do you know why? Because when we do that, the grace that saves us doesn't seem so amazing anymore. The gospel tethers us by reminding us of the truth that we are in desperate need of a savior and that we can't save ourselves. The gospel rescues you. The gospel tethers you. And last, the gospel transforms you. Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So Paul now completes his testimony by moving from who he was to who he is now. And the heart of the gospel is God's grace. God's grace. And God's grace first is his unmerited, unconditional love. It's a gift that we didn't earn and we don't deserve. Second, grace is also God's supernatural power and ability at work in us and through us to do exactly what he's called us to do. We are Christians by God's grace and whatever we get to do for God is by God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's grace says nothing about who we are. But it says everything about who God is. 
If you're a husband or a wife, it's by God's grace. If you're an employee or a business owner, it's by God's grace. If you're a student, it's by God's grace. In verse 10, Paul declares, I am what I am by God's grace. He is a follower of Jesus by God's grace. He is an apostle by God's grace because he didn't receive it in vain. Which means he held fast to it. He held on to it. And as an apostle, Paul outworked everyone. He made the most of every opportunity. He did everything that he needed to do, everything that he knew to do. He worked hard. But even that hard work was God's grace, God's supernatural work power working through him. One of the things that helped me as a younger believer greatly was a discussion I had with Phil about 15 years ago. And he told me in that discussion, it was a great teaching moment, that as Christians, many of us have never been taught how to handle a compliment. And he said that when we try to explain away a gift or an ability or some outcome, what we're trying to do is we're trying to stay humble, but what ends up happening is we end up sacrificing honesty. And false humility is really pride. We don't have to go around and humbly apologize for our gift, our ability, because it was given to us by the grace of God. It's not about us. It's about him. The gospel transforms us. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was an enemy of God who became one of God's most faithful servants. We were enemies of God. And now, if we have surrendered to him, we have the privilege of serving him as well. And just a quick note. It's not easy. And not everyone is going to appreciate the change when you stop apologizing and you start living with that kind of a humble boldness. But keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, not on all the naysayers who are trying to slow you down. The book of Acts recounts how people had serious reservations about the authenticity of Paul's conversion. And if you look at his track record, you can see how that makes sense. Shoot, if you look at my track record, I would be skeptical. And I know some of you all, and I'm skeptical too. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Even today, we can be very cynical when we see dramatic, high-profile conversions. Most commentators would agree that Kanye West's artistic journey has been a wild ride. He's arguably one of the most significant pop artists of the last 20 years, and certainly one of the most unpredictable. His background is well known. All of his studio albums have gone platinum. He's created a high-end fashion line. He's married to American entertainment royalty. And Kanye has not shied away from boasting in his worldly success. In his 2013 album, Jesus, he even has a track called I Am God. And when news broke of his recent conversion to Christianity, the responses, they were all over the place. Secular critics took him to task for making a shameless career move to find a new and relevant audience. And some Christians actually had a very similar, some Christian critics had a, had a very similar response. But on his new album that just came out a couple weeks ago, Jesus is King, he anticipates that Christian response on his song, Hands On. And this is what he says. He said, I'm going to do a gospel album. 
what you've been hearing from the Christians. They'll be the first ones to judge me, make it feel like nobody loved me. Now, the response among Christians has been varied. I think over the years as Christians, we've been too quick to claim a celebrity or an athlete who makes any reference to God as one of our own. And sometimes we've been burned. We want to be seen as relevant. We want to have a seat at the cultural table. And listen, that's not all bad. We should be having an impact in the culture for the kingdom of God. I'm just not sure that Christian celebrities is where we should be putting our hope. But my approach to Kanye West has been one of cautious optimism. And unfortunately, one of the things that happens as we get further away from our own conversion is we develop a judgmental and sometimes arrogant attitude on who we think can and can't be saved. I hope and pray that it's a true conversion and that he continues to grow in his relationship with Jesus. But my hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want to put that kind of pressure on any human. It would be sinful for me to do so, and it would be impossible for anyone to live up to. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let's remember that we bring nothing to our salvation except our sin. The Bible is full of enemies of God who were transformed into sons and daughters If Paul the persecutor, Zacchaeus the tax collector, or the woman at the well can be transformed, why not Kanye West? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We all have a past. We all used to be a different person. In fact, if you're in Christ, the old you is dead. If you were washed, if you were sanctified, if you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, what's stopping Kanye West? Toward the end of the song, Hands On, Kanye West makes an appeal to the church. This is what he says. Yes, I understand your reluctancy, but I have a request, you see. Don't throw me up. Lay your hands on me. Please, pray for me. How can we say no? Kevin Williams, writing in National Review, notes the weight of impossible expectations that are on Kanye West, and he says this, quote, The temptation will be to set him up as an idol on Tuesday in order to enjoy the sport of knocking him down on Wednesday. Let's not do that to Kanye. It's not our job to judge his heart. Let's treat him as a new brother in Jesus Christ and pray for him. Because the gospel transforms us. 1 Corinthians 15, 11, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, 
And so you believed. Here Paul ends where he began. Paul preached the gospel and they received it. And note here one final example of humility that comes when we embrace the gospel. Paul says it it doesn't matter who gets the credit. And that's what you've been seeing here at New Life the last few months. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. Normally, I close with an illustration or a story to drive the point home. But I feel like right now what God wants me to do is not end with a story that illustrates the gospel, but end with the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm going to take my cue from the Apostle Paul and deliver to you what I first received, that which is of first importance. And as I close, I want you to keep this thought in mind from Tim Keller. He says, you're more sinful than you ever dared believe, but you're more loved than you ever dared hope. God has always existed in relationship as father, son, and Holy Spirit. And out of the overflow of that love, God created the world and all of its wonder. And we are created in God's image. Male and female, he created us. We were created to rule, to extend, to manage his good creation, to extend it. But from the very beginning, human beings didn't trust God and chose to define good and evil in their own mind. And the result is death, disease, and chaos, and separation from God. And from that time forward, every human being that has ever been born has inside an internal desire to run their own lives and reject God's rule. But because of sin, we don't manage God's creation well, and we don't manage ourselves very well at all. But God is patient God is long-suffering, but he won't be patient forever. God's judgment is coming for everyone who turns their back on him, who disregards his rule and his influence in their life. And that is bad news. But that's not the end of the story. God didn't leave us with that fate. He sent his son as a way. He made a way for us. He sent his son to live the perfect life that we should have lived and to rescue us and to rescue all of creation. And if we're honest, we all know that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glory. And if we're really honest, we know that we've fallen short of our own standards for ourselves. And Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that we should have lived, but that we can't live because our hearts are messed up. And Jesus then lays his life down as a perfect sacrifice. Jesus never disobeyed his father. And that perfect sacrifice is the atoning sacrifice for my sin and for yours. He paid the price for every evil thought, every evil word you've spoken, every evil thing I've done. And on the cross, Jesus became guilty of murder. On the cross, Jesus became guilty of racism. On the cross, Jesus became a thief. And the list goes on. This means that there's nothing 
absolutely nothing that you've done that God won't forgive. And God demonstrates his perfect love and his perfect justice on the cross. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And he was buried in a tomb and he died the death that we rightfully deserve. He died as an innocent man. That's not the end of the story. On the third day, Jesus rose victorious from the grave over death, over sin, over Satan, and over the power of hell. And everyone who turns to God and surrenders can have eternal life and be transformed both now and forever. And today, right now, you can have a fresh start with God. Because the gospel rescues us. The gospel tethers us. The gospel transforms us. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Father, thank you for making a way. And Father, right now I pray in these moments that you would do something supernatural in the hearts of your people. Father, I pray that you would be at work even now doing the miraculous on the inside. And Father, I pray for your people that Jesus would be our supreme treasure. Help us, Lord. And I pray this all in the strong, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. See, the gospel is is news. It's not advice. It's not instruction on how to do better. It's news. And the preaching of the gospel always generates a response. And my question to you is, how will you respond? Will your heart get harder towards the things of God, towards God? Or will you run to the arms of God?